ora and welcome to um, Circuit Cast. My name is Israel Randall and today I'm going to be in conversation with Alex Monteith. Um, welcome to the pod. Kia ora and We're talking today because um, Circuit has commissioned you to make a new work for our 2020 programme of Artist Cinema Commissions. This year it's called Sovereign Pacific, Pacific Sovereigns. There are five films in the program um, from Aotearoa and from Philippines. You can see them at Pataka on Friday, 23rd of October at 6.30pm. Sovereigns Pacific, Pacific Sovereigns is curated by a circuit curator at large, David Tay, who has also covered the circuit symposium taking place the next day. So, Alex, I wanted to talk to you about how you came to make this work. I think a big a big deal in the way how I approached this was to um, it it comes from wanting to use the filmic process to understand another layer of te moana, the moana in the broadest sense for me. But as Toiwi um, and someone that's been living in the Pacific area for the last twenty years, but I'm from uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland era. That's where I'm born. Um, is just taking a next step in that journey and using the film to kind of um, make observations and make studies that are attentive to the cycles um, in that kind of place and space. And so the, the questions that David was raising and the provocations are really relevant to some of the stages that um, I think like I have a background in surfing as well as in making art and I'm really interested in the politics like a kind of thinking plane around um, the moana but also a lived practice in relationship to it and so I thought oh look the questions he's got and where I'm at now in my life with family that's connected with um, Samoan heritage Irish heritage and me being Taui in New Zealand this is a really complex situation to try and understand but there seemed to be an opportunity in the questions to kind of you know, take a step, and so um, yeah, the film is the product of five months of the window of time of the commission studying the currents and uh, the ocean at Tapiha, where I live and reside. But knowing that I wanted to connect um, some some specifics and some narratives there, and do some study around what that might mean, what what is coming in in the sea and the ocean and the waves and in the currents. And um, because COVID happened in the middle of it, initially it was going to be very much about our region here. But because COVID pushed us inside, there's sort of this moment happened where we couldn't leave at all to connect with anyone, couldn't talk to anyone, and couldn't do face-to-face interviews and things. And so that, well, the effect that it had on me was it pushed me to really look at actually the edit where I'm editing in a home edit suite is a place, but it's a weird place that can connect to my archive. So this question of the moana came up where as well, like I sort of am looking back through my archive and I gathered and studied huge storms that had affected the Atlantic seas in 2015. And I had thought about them in artworks, but I thought there was an interesting opportunity to kind of look at political understandings of the ocean between the two places as I've started to kind of move through of like new understandings of them as my as you know things have gone on. So there's a little bit of bi- biography in there. So I'm sort of because I think with you know coming from the northern hemisphere like that and um, living and being politicised here, it's really amounted to a lot of unlearning of terminology um, assumptions and 
the neo, being in a neo-colonial kind of era and claims on the ocean, ocean floor, these kind of things are so complex. So the film approach is a little bit complex too. Like it, it touches on um, bits of law and it also does a lot of observation of what's happening on a day-to-day basis on the foreshore and the coastal area just around Tepeha the immediate bay south that you can walk to mm. and uh, finally when the COVID levels lifted um, I took a step out because I, I had I wanted to connect to uh, Whatipu and a key um, aspect of that in there with the upraised seas of Kupe originating from a moment when that rock was struck there so there was a, I had to go out of the valley just to make some connections once <laughs> But everything else, the whole thing is made, has been made from right there mm. in that spot. So my archives that already existed, some checking in with friends in different places overseas, the internet as a place of circulation. Mm. And like that, this way of thinking about it, somehow it came about um, because I discovered that within the science realm, which I'd on the one hand have some trouble with about um, kind of calculating things about the seas and things like that on the other hand sometimes I, I became interested in a science that could connect and reconnect us to a, you know, the sea in a more holistic way and a more philosophical way and thinking about whakapapa as, and those aspects that are here and of the Pacific the, the thermohaline is a really interesting aspect of ocean water behaviour and it's a circulation that involves um, gradients and salinity and temperature changes so water density driving a global circulation of, of seawater and it takes you know, a characteristic of it, it takes something like around about approximately a thousand years for water that we see in the Pacific on any given beach or in Te Mononui Akua, any, any place in 1,000 years, it could have gone the whole oceans of the world and come back to that place. Mm. Or it could have got caught in a little eddy and kind of gone off somewhere, but the, actually the thermohaline the actually circulates continually like that. And so I started, to, um, I started to look at these pulses of literature and philosophy and whakapapa here on this side, and then in the Irish side I was looking at the old literature that... Um, mentions the sea 500 years ago around that time and a thousand years ago and older because they they had the history of writing that down into poems really so yep so it's recorded so um sort of look I sort of feel like these 500 year cycles seem quite interesting in relation to the journey of the water inside the thermohaline and these deep currents Mm. so that's a that's a long preamble on that one but (laughs) yeah what was the literature like in Ireland? Uh, some of it, um, there's an aspect of romantic Irish literature that's it's maybe over a thousand years old. It's been passed on and copied by monks. Um, I think it's it's the Three Waves of Erin is a translation of it. So there's, there's, there's a story of these three waves which break in different parts around the coast of Ireland and the, the way that they were recorded the, and understood is that the, the sound of the waves was understood like the breaking of the waves over the banks and one of them is in Dundrum Bay on the inside coast between England and Ireland and one, there's two of them that are on more like the outside, the north coast and on the west coast on the Atlantic seaboard or the, on the Atlantic and um, I was just thinking about that. Oh, it's just remarkable because the 
the these three tons, these three waves, they they remembered and have translated have sort of told the story of their sound throughout these hundreds of years of like keeping the archives and the, the sound note of the waves a, a tohunga type of a, a spiritual character could interpret that and know the future from it like if a, if a um, chieftain was going to have something bad happen to them they could read the sound of the wave and know that there was something kind of going to happen from it but what I thought was really interesting about it is that they were really listening to the note of the water, like the the way it sings or howls or smashes or whatever that that was, and they were interpreting it. And I think when I was reading some of that and just finding it amazing that a discussion of sound of the wave was carried through the ages like that in those poems, like it made me pay a lot of attention to the sacredness of sound mm. in like in specific bays that it's specific the sound the sound reflecting off each bay and cove when you stand there is different depending on exactly where you stand mm. and so you know there are um, places and bays in all countries that have a special note or and people maybe tell stories about those and so I started to look of course at Takawaro Amaki and also the you know European history with the sound note too like the they had that tendency of calling like the seas things like the roaring 40s and roaring you know I'm like oh, I kind of think that's quite cool so a lot of maybe research I guess I was looking using the internet to kind of research the ways that things had been carried in the written tradition and then looking at some of the whakapapa aspects here and going back over old conversations and yeah and so throughout your um Film you've used new and old, yeah, content I guess. Yeah, the um the everything that is shot at Tapiha is new and it's been shot since the start of the commission. So I started as soon as I knew. Okay, I think I I was coming from that place where a lot of times, um, say with somewhere like Tapiha and Karikari, the the screen image has been very has been often about telling a story of something else other than it. Um, other than the ocean, or it, it, it kind of can, it can always, it can often be a backdrop that can sometimes be anywhere. And so, I think I really was interested in the, just just specifically giving it its own arena, and spending that time, you know, kind of studying, studying what that might be in sort of filmic video, videographic terms. Mm. And I started just gathering. I definitely was interested in because the thermohaline really, you know, an understanding that the water that comes in at Tepeha has come from somewhere just prior, like that day, it might have travelled, um, you know, at a one metre per per second in a really fast current, or it might be going slower, just going in a sweep. But it's also going on to somewhere. And then in a general sense, territorially, the sea's discussed by, or, you know, it's held in stories around kupe or whoever whoever came in and, you know, touched, had interaction with the bay, and that, that's carrying on. So that's got its own specific sort of way of holding it. But I was really interested in where did the water go after those people had told their stories or made their mark, or where's that water from five or 600 years ago? Now, like, <laughs> physically, where's it gone to? <laughs> You know, and storytelling wise, we know where it's gone to. It's in the people. So, I guess, well, going back to your question though, oh yeah, gathering and filming and observing the changes, the changes with the current effects of it, and 
just paying attention to in some ways like the demeanour of it as an expression of sometimes that relates to tanifa when the tanifa take that form it can be in a rearing up of the water and um, there's a place that Te Kaurau Maki regard as the, um, the writhings of Kaifari just south of Taitomo Island and um, there's there's places that have those demeanours associated and so thinking about those and paying attention to when they do their demeanour and or if it's still there all the time and just these complications. Yeah, and look, another thing is around thinking about about just unpeeling a little bit around that Tauiwi relationship with um, the complex history of settlement as well. That does come up in the film and in my thinking as Tauiwi that has settled there. Mm-hmm. And that... and. Um, so that's where with um, Taitomo, that being, um, that wasn't seeded, the settlement, the settlement process, the colonisation process affected everywhere in the area, but that area stayed in Takaurau Maki hands and they, re- they have their special regard around that. And it, so, it, so the question of sovereignty that David raised is really, really complex because on the one hand, um, the settler farmers and things like that had no interest in Taitomo because it was such difficult land so they didn't leave it with Takaurau Maki for any good reason other than the fact it couldn't be put to use in their, in their eyes but it, uh, the way Takaurau Maki are describing that and it's held also in its own regard because it is uh, held by them and has had that continual link and hasn't had that colonial kind of um, paper ownership mm. so the complexity um, people I know when they'd be going to Piha and I know myself when I went there those things are not um, they're things that unfold but they're not so the film works its way around that through through looking at the currents and a little bit like on the edge of it just yeah th- thinking thinking um, what's observable what's discernible what can you feel this kind of yeah and studying also the um, settlement you know the settlement um, treaty settlement kind of um aspects of that so you're looking at legal documents and that's all the way through the film lots of ways of um, where worldviews clash and produce legal documents. What were some of David's ideas of sovereignty because he comes from a different viewpoint and he's based in Singapore. Uh, Initially when I started to think about this topic I couldn't get away from New Zealand, oh, like Aotearoa-based thinking around sovereignty, especially as Māori. I was interested to see how you rejected or took on board his thoughts around that. I think when the word sovereignty was provoked into converse, conversation, I find the term very difficult now in terms of where I'm at, in terms of politics maybe. But I did start to sort of think, well, just working through the layers of it and the intangibles and tangibles of it. So Taitomo is described, the discussion around it, post all of the activities and actions and claims on it that have happened is discussed in terms of um, sovereignty and ownership. But I was really interested as well in the way of trying to listen to what's coming through in those stories about Tanifa or about things that connect onto or touch onto it because they point to um, their own, they're coming through with their own stories, but there's something about their demeanour that can be a reminder and a warning. And there seems to be 
in, in these look yeah it, it's ex- the complexity is enduring it's it's incredible complexity um so I became a little bit interested to look at the language of the legal descriptions but create a bit, quite a bit of space around them so that they're trying to let the ocean come up through it and, and it's a bit more closer to its time because filmic time can observe the surface conditions in the sea kind of in real time and you can replay it and re-experience it and legal time and that terrain and its behaviour and time it can be so all-reaching the concepts can be all-reaching the doctrine of discovery is just ricocheting through and hugely affecting of the ocean domain so I, I guess I'm looking for a way out and it's tries many avenues and, and it also gets trapped back in the cycles and the unavailability of new languages in a way I, I keep hoping that through shared work and corridor that I've had in the past but also now in this work there was something that I wanted to do that was to do with the ocean time and paying attention to like lunar cycles and that could pull slightly back out of it but also being trapped in optics the filmic media itself has its own um, relationship you know in in capitalism and so you're using a potentially toxic difficult toxic language to try and undo things that are problematic so the whole yeah so those multi those multiple layers but one way I started to approach the problems of that question around media and trying to come to a more um, one a philosophical kind of space in a media that is um, chemically a little bit antithetical to it was to look for the ways it, it connected with water intrinsically like the flow of ions within the media is maybe a positive connection because it behaves a bit like water but then on the negative side some of the mineral constituents associated with the filmic process are very tricky when it comes to aspects around the sea and then I kind of the, the link to seabed mining and titanomagnetite which is um, uh, the, the iron sand those ocean claims are um, you know vast tracts of land that it's like um, mathematical projections over the ocean and they're enormous, they're huge, vast areas. So there's something that connects between, you know, our technology and our philosophical concepts that's so problematic. And so I was looking for lots of ways out, out and then I would get looped back in and and I really I put my own life a little bit on the thinking it through and putting casting doubt over it in terms of, you know, the, the footage that I've gathered, it's... It does some things. It pays attention to storms, but it's also tremendously difficult, as well. The way that you know deal with the ethics of global circulation of images and the imprint that digital technology has on Papatūānuku and on the Earth, and indeed on the ocean, the weather systems that we use to even track. Or, you know, like I say, I was really wanting to pay attention to particular big swells at Piha and around this thinking about Taniwha and other things that might be in the sea and the swells or. You know, you use weather reports to do that, and the weather reports are generated by AI and connect to these massive networks of global buoys, and the buoys then connect to their feeding scientific information. That's, you know, like so that interconnectivity. It's just, um, yeah, the film the film moves around a lot because of that complexity. It wasn't um, I have in the past sometimes made you know one shot works, but this one goes back and back to the tide, almost like with new questions and maybe another layer of the problem and goes back and looks you know at another way of trying to understand that incoming tide of that day and where it could be headed to 
mm. by the end of the day or by the end of the week you know it sort of tries to open up that that space um, I was reading this book and it was like Living by the Moon they talk about how um, the, tohunga, the tohunga will go to the sand when the moon is coming to full and yeah. they'll put a stick in the um, sand and then come back when it's again and if it's like gone past the stick or then they're like oh it's not full moon yet and then they'll like reposition the stick yep as a way to um measure the tide yep and i feel like these are the thoughts that are coming up in my head when you talk about your work that that process that practice of attending to that through the nightly observations and going back to it there's also a description too about like um with the lunar cycles and maramataka the the um the groundwater coming up and the kumara going in at different times that, that you know they how they um they feed sort of vigorously and then they're not so good for storage because yes. they're so full of water on yes. the high water yeah yeah but that deep connection to what it's doing every month is something in urbanisation and in the whole process that we're all involved in um, living practices in relation to the sea have taken a really big hit across the board. I kind of got quite interested in like you know surfing in the context of other ways of living living and connecting to the sea like such as fishing or you know just lots of any, any anything where you're deriving a livelihood, food, you know your kaimana, your these things they all you need to be living in relation to sign and you need to know what the conditions are that suit this thing that you're, you're the way you're going to relate. And I'm really, really interested in that overall, you know, like in, in the broader range of like the work that I'm doing. Mm. And this one is really paired down to kind of trying to attend to, there's definitely things that are happening with wind in my work a lot. So if they were going out and looking at tide and just when is that real push of high tide, they're lucky on the east coast on that side around that because it can be a lot more settled. So each night that tide could come up it's quite consistent in the sense of observing the moon on our side the wind is so involved that mm-hmm. you could get the moon pulling it um, higher and higher overnight but the the, the, um, the point where that peg would go in would be up and down up and down according to those swells because it can just change it so much mm. but I think there's there's something that's happening to us that puts pushing us away from those relationships across the board and I'm really interested in I'm really interested overall in people coming back to it in any and all forms and being, paying attention to um, people who have stayed connected with that and as well, so just staying near those stories. I really like the sound of waves. I really like that. I know, well, the thing is that, you know, like it can feel general. It can it can definitely feel general, like white noise in, in some ways, but the sea cave asp- the thing that tweaked my interest a little bit reading those old texts in the Irish on the Irish side was definitely around the sacredness of that note and that it could have been interpreted by their spiritual leaders um, mm. thoughtfully and it also interested me that they had carried on the stories over such a long period of time which um, here too there's the tradition of the of stories of waves and their significance in the early navigation um, if they do tip to waka or anything they've come through as well That, and when you think of what a wave is like those waves that have caused a story to take them on they, they really interest, interest me you know what were the waves like and where did that water carry on to mm. because in big wave surfing you're in pursuit of the biggest of the big waves you know and it's, I was just starting to go well this is quite an, big wave surfing is interesting and at the same time, it's a narrow view of what can happen in the sea too, but it, it's complex. Like, yeah, so I guess I just started to um, 
pay really want to pay more attention to what conditions come together to make sometimes the stories but sometimes the swells as well so I waited to see what would happen at PR throughout David's whole part of you know part of the commission like I was things will happen I don't know what they are but I want to pay attention to them and see and I watched you know I kind of went out and worked it's very much documentary in the sense of who comes to the tide so the tide leads it rather than me making invitations and I've worked in that way before but this film was much more about who's coming to the tide and um, how the tide is you know and then I go to it too sometimes on particular currents or low tide for a particular reason or high tide for a particular reason so um yeah, because what would it mean to to look at, um, you know, the writhings of kaifari in that sense of that tanifa, that lear area, but when it is or isn't writhing, you know, when the sea is still and when and it has those all those demeanours, mm. but um, to PR can have that thing where you you do go and you kind of just enjoy it, but you don't nothing nothing always you know something might not, it might not penetrate because it's like a scenery. I think that European thing around scenery is pretty problematic. But it remains a problem that you're still sort of overcoming all the time as well. It's not like you can sort of solve it. Keeps mm. keeps redoing it. Mm. And I like I like um, the idea of observing something in its lulls and in its ebbs and flows because mm. sometimes it um, reminds us of its own sovereignty or of its own agency in its power or in its um you know what it can what it can do like and in noticing that through tanifa or through cycles or through waves is um uh, i would say humbling but also invigorating yeah absolutely like i think it's um you know when you're saying about maybe sometimes you have to be watchful of how the sea is that's something so you know and some of the some, some of the things I did was like observe the places that had attracted that story holding around Tanifa is because they can be warnings and they can be the guardian side like the paikia or um, different things but around Piha there are ones that do seem to have more of the warning <laughs> side of things I was sort of looking at that going and even today, you know, your life can be at risk on the rocks fishing. So I did sort of start to look up this aspect around where science had got to with the question of rogue waves. This is just sort of an aside, like a little story. But like, and they, because of some great big ship disasters, um, scientists have calculated how often rogue waves occur. You know, there's a, on, on any given day, you'll have your average seas, but there's a certain number of cycles where you'll get something that's double that size, and that's quite a small number of cycles. You'll get a double size wave, and that could definitely knock people off the rocks. But then there's a wider number of cycles. These turn up in the film. It's a little subchapter where it will be triple the size, and then more around the 300,000 waves that would um, it can go up to four times as big, even if the sea averages, if the sea state is kind of say one meter. Three, every three, the three hundred thousandth wave, that could be four times bigger. But it does give an explanation for when people do get pushed off the rocks, and why also all those sto- some stories will be relating to keep pe- keeping people safe and able to continue a life of gathering and relating to those places. Mm. But you, so even though the science has done this number crunching, and it can kind of tell you that much, it still can't tell you when. 
that mm. that's going to happen. And a whole lot of the sea is kind of like that in the Mornand Ocean. And the sea state is being, um, more and more of it's being counted by science and giving numeric, you know, um, contributing to data. There's a massive push to map the seafloor that is concerning because it mostly is related to the continental shelf floors and new technology that means that it can be um, mined and they couldn't have mined it before so they didn't define the territory and now there's a massive rush politically to map all that territory because they've got ships that can do more and uh, extract things from greater depth. Mm. And like, um, you know, it was really finding out about the thermohaline, I thought maybe some of that science could be used back at the science, like the connecting science could be used a little bit to ask questions of the other um, activities that are pr- being proposed to happen in the places of the sea and the moana. And then does that relate to, um, I remember when I was watching it edit, yeah, there was like a river that they were digging out or like... Um, oh yeah, yeah. Well, because that's one of the things that happened during um, during the period was that the, so we're talking about the um, an area in the northern part of uh, Tapia that uh, the council came in and did stream training so they dug um, and the reason they did that is because the um, continuous southwesterly winds for two weeks had blown sand from the south completely and it had shut the mouths of the river the two little creeks that come out there's actually two that kind of conjoined there um, so the Wekatahi and Marafara, um that they kind of conjoined but then they blocked with sand and so um, over time that created an inland swamp and then eventually that inland swamp was going up so high it was threatening sort of water supplies and uh, also septic kind of risk. And it's part of, in a way that wind is moving the sand around as part of a natural cycle, there's a big accretion happening. And so it just, the wind just moved some of the sand but because of the houses and because of you know the, that sort of resident and settlement kind of process then that that action had to be done by in terms of the council stance on the on that hour, on those little hour and I reckon even um, land management of the foreshore so when when people come to Piha they will not be necessarily thinking that it's been affected in that way but it has there's so much of what's happened there is um, has had intervention and it's hard to see it because natural cycles cover it like a little bit mm. but the, the sand dunes that have built up um, in the south part of the uh, the bay that part there that was um, some of the rock that was used you know, as part of the roading ended up down there to try and create a dune for some reason back in time and now lots of sand's catching on it and there's just whole lots of things that, that you don't see in terms of prior history of land management mm. but it is that thing of a relation with the natural environment and then if you make one adjustment in the human realm for whatever particular reason around the question of settlement um, certain other refractions and reflections start to happen but yeah so it was a moment where the diggers all arrived and they re-dug the exits but you know really I think at, at that place just in that moment it was wanting to return to wetland you know and so what's happening on land is now to a more extent that all of that management sort of is being applied over the sea because more of the sea can be reached or the sea and it's interconnected and interlocking kind of parts of its seafloor relations and it's sand and yeah but a few interesting things are happening you know with climate change too there's more wind and that's affecting it's actually affecting the thermohaline so film touches on that a little bit mm. 
which is scary that these really big systems are incrementally changing as a result of things human. I just I just can't believe that you can look out to sea and think now we might be as a, as a you know as the activities that humans are doing could be changing the the very nature of something of the scale of the of Timwana and Timwana Nui, the bigger or greater ocean. Like it, it could be happening that we are having that effect, and and it's such a revelation. Normally, I think just one generation ago, we would have put ourselves more in the, you know, we we never could have had that kind of impact. It would always be greater. Mm. Could always absorb, you know, what's going on on the land, but it's. It's showing signs that impacts us are becoming of that all-globe sort of scale. Just trying to connect some bits of it. How did you find working in a cinema structure? Oh, look, I, I think one thing that was quite nice about it is, is for me, because I've been working in a multi-channel format for quite a while in space, which allows me to have quite a lot of multiplicity in the edit, so I can have two concurrent water spaces running and a little bit of text language or a little bit of oration happening. And I've always liked that slightly more atomised thing so that I can have a longer take and have a sort of the pace occurs a little bit more spread out like that. But coming back to a more linear format has got its benefits too because it's quite it's really concentrated in its linearity and and then I think well okay that can work the narrative structure in this um the way place is cut together is a little bit it's non-linear but it's cyclical and that it goes north to south north to south all the time and it just goes between two parts of coast because and it's just because they're so far apart but also because I fuck up to one and I live in the other <laughs> so and that's just just kept it to that in many ways, the film could be made from any two very far-flung opposite, um, you know, <laughs> places. But it, yeah, it just it just took on what it meant to to have been from that coast and be living and connecting in, a new life in a way in the, in the present one. It's kind of personal too, I think. Now, I think playing, um, like even when I was talking to Rangi, we talked lots about the Western accepted timeline how he wanted to like play with that and that particular model was almost so known that in that space um, you can almost foresee Mm. um, a narrative or events kind of happening and I feel like what's coming through in the artist cinema commissions I guess in terms of Pacific sovereignty is this reclamation of a cyclical time and narrative how time is in the natural cycles is it's sort of like, you know, there's kind of aspects of repetition and aspects of change, but, you know, philosophical time as well. But I think definitely the way I've approached things, it's, it's in, initially it was shot following a current or a, a swell arriving from start to end. So there was this natural, it was linear initially, and I actually found it really hard to, I found it hard editing it because I kept wanting to put the storms back together in the sequence that the storm had unfolded in. But when I started to focus more in a philosophical way about, say, troubling things that might be happening in the sea, like, say, seabed mining or something maybe that that was on my mind, which is an imposed thing, a human thing, imagined into the sea space, but also a human process, that technological process when it comes to the mining part, something, some other thing needed to be done in relation to that. It's an abstract 
set of things and so for that so yeah so I broke the relationship with the order of time and it goes it moves through subjects in a little bit more it's a little bit fluid and a little bit infused but one thing that it often happens within it I've chose to put the moon the clear moon like if I could get a clear night to film it I did film the moon in relation to the swells that were associated with it and that was because there was an old debate back in time whether the moon influenced swell size we know it influenced tidal totally that connection is like you can always tell where the moon is by where the tide is there's signs of one another I was like you know in surf in the surfer mindset I was like Did it, but does it make it bigger does it make the surf bigger and what moon do you surf because like with fishing it does affect it computers tell us it doesn't make the surf bigger <laughs> you know the the, really? the big AI set of calculations out there in information land but but why was what's that yeah it doesn't it doesn't make it bigger but it's sort of so I kind of like through the research I kind of was thinking about sort of things like that what you think is knowledge and what you find out through machinery and then what you find out through attending to links that you see and those two things just sit in the film all the time but there's always a moon of a swell there's always a moon of the people that came to that swell so there's a sort of like a thing that happens yeah that I've, that I've kind of kept in the film so it keeps going back to a lunar moment and then back into the water for some for something the water it might be like a natural thing or it might be thinking about the politics it sort of changes as mm-hmm. it goes when David sort of proposed things I thought well I know I'm interested in some politics but I also know that observing a relationship with the water will tell something else back mm-hmm. whatever I think I'm imposing I'll, but I'll go to it anyway and I'll see mm-hmm. so th- I think the result the film's a bit of a mixture of answers or, mm. and new questions <laughs> yeah. in a constant cycle yeah they are in a bit of a con- they f- they're kind of in a constant cycle and for me it's not it's a kind of um, film that's a part stage on a journey because I feel like I'm in a relationship with both a question about Timwana but in a relationship with a process and re- you know where I go back to it and I rethink it and I've used some you know I've gone back to some old footage to rethink it what it means in the North Sea, the North Sea and the Northern Hemisphere, and what it means having having that knowledge of those ocean waves and how huge they are, and they are huge, and always thinking the sea demeanour here and where are the strengths and powers in the in you know Tangaroa's domain here, looking especially to the south where the, some of it comes from. It's continuous storms that circle around. Wow, we better wrap up. Thanks for inviting us into your office today. Thank you for coming. We're excited to see the work. I definitely am. Good luck with (laughs) everything that you're doing as well as uh, the final edit of the work. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Circuit Cast with myself, Israel Randall, and my guest, Alex Monteith. Thanks to Creative New Zealand for their support and thanks for listening. Sovereign Pacific, Pacific Sovereign screens at Pātaka on Friday 23rd of October at 6.30. Admission free. One screening only. Don't miss out.